0: Uh, thank you, Paul. Good evening. And if you want to pick up a pew Bible or have your own Bible and want to turn with me, please, to Psalm 150, the very last psalm of the Book of Psalms. It's, there you have it on page 634 in the pew Bibles. It's a very brief psalm, uh, and yet it's a very challenging psalm. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty heavens. Praise him for his acts of power. Praise him for his surpassing greatness. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Isn't it true that our conversation is often littered with cliches? If you think about our conversations, aren't they really often littered with cliches? Take the current Euro 2012. All the match analysis are littered with cliches. It's a game of two halves. They wanted it more than we did. We played our hearts out. Take even our general conversation. Time will tell. No news is good news. What goes round comes round. And I will suggest it's true as well that we have our Christian cliches. I'm praying for you. Are you really? Fellowship. What's the meaning of that word? We talk about fellowship. God bless. It rolls off our tongue. Even praise the Lord. And this evening as we come to the final message of Deep Calls to Deep, we need to be careful of how we use that very phrase from Psalm 150, the last book of the Psalms. You see, each of the Last five psalms begin with that very phrase, praise the Lord. If you look back over the last five psalms in the book of Psalms, you'll find this repeated over and over again. And here in the six verses of Psalm 150, we find this word praise or praise the Lord or hallelujah, for that's its root meaning. You're right, Paul, 13 times at least I counted that as well. But the question is, is this possibly the psalmist just drifting off into his world of cliches? Or is there more to it than that? Well, I want to suggest that this is not the psalmist lost in a world of cliches. But rather, it's the psalmist sensing he's over the moon, to use another cliche. He's in seventh heaven He's on cloud nine. He's bursting with joy as he comes before God in prayer. Now remember, we've been praying our way through these psalms, identifying with the psalmist's feelings of crying out to God in times of grief, in times of danger, in times of loneliness, in times of feeling guilty, times of doubt or frustration, or feeling ignored. But I wonder how many of our prayers really begin with praise. Isn't it more natural for us to come before God with a kind of spiritual shopping list about ourselves or about others or about other situations? How often do you and I praise the Lord in our prayers? And yet that's what Psalm 150 calls us to do. Now, here's a logo. I wonder how many people recognise this. Anybody want to hazard a guess? No. Okay, it's Ireland's award-winning science and discovery centre at the Odyssey. And as somebody said, it's based on W5: Who, What, Where, When, Why. Well, here's my W4. To help you to remember it. Where, why, how, who. Okay, I've cheated. I've cheated. I'll admit, I've cheated. But you poor souls need something simple to help you to remember. So here we have it. Psalm 150. Where, why, how, who. Where are we to praise the Lord? Well, verse 1 gives us the answer. We are to praise God in his sanctuary, praise him in his mighty heavens. And the word Lord is in capitals. And whenever you see the word Lord in capitals, this is the word Jehovah, the self-existent and eternal one. The psalmist then shifts his focus to praise God. God in terms of the one that he says is strong and mighty. And we are to praise the eternal one and the strong and mighty one in his sanctuary. Now the dictionary describes a sanctuary as a place recognized as holy. A church, a temple, the tabernacle, a holy place. So we are to praise God, the eternal, strong and mighty God, in his sanctuary. A reference to the temple where God used to dwell. But since Jesus died and rose again... The Bible reminds us that he tabernacles within his people, choosing not to dwell in a building. So when we actually refer to this part of our suite of buildings as the sanctuary, that isn't strictly correct. We are his temple and we should therefore live out the implications of what that means. Do you remember two Sunday mornings ago whenever David gave us this verse? No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. God doesn't live in this building. He lives in us. And it goes on in verse 1 to say, Praise him in his mighty heavens, or not just in the sanctuary, but in the whole expanse of his power, Or as we have it earlier, if you look back in Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God and the skies proclaim the work of his hands. We are to praise God in his whole expanse. Why are we to praise the Lord? Well, verse 2 gives us at least two reasons for praising the Lord. First, we are to praise him for what he does. Praise Him for His acts of power. And that's a theme that's found frequently in the Psalms. The idea of the might shown by God and the victories He's won. His acts of power are displayed in creation. His acts of power are displayed in great deliveries, in human lives, lives, ours as well, as we remember and enjoy and appreciate His grace and His salvation. And quite a number of us here this evening have good reason to praise the Lord for even very recent ways in which he has demonstrated acts of power in our lives. Relationships healed, victory over sin, renewed health, answers to specific prayer requests. And we are to praise God for what he does. But notice also we are to praise him in the second part of verse 2 for his surpassing greatness. Earlier in the Psalms, in 145 in verse 3, the psalmist says, Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. Psalm 147 says, in verse 5, Great is the Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. And we are to praise God for who he is. I wonder, can you remember with me one of David's first sermons when he came to Windsor? Do you remember the morning he spoke on the alphabet attributes of God? And I keep that little alphabet in my Bible. And I have found that extremely helpful just to remind me of who this God is and why we are to praise him. And right down that list, you can see the uniqueness of our God, the attributes, the characteristics of our God. Thirdly, how are we to praise God? Now, this is where I'm in danger of getting into trouble. But here we go. Have a look again at those verses of 3, 4, and 5. Interesting verses, challenging verses. Let's read them again. Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with tambourine and dancing. Praise him with the strings and flute. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with the resounding cymbals. Now, what do you make of that? How do you respond to that? Does that challenge you and make you feel uncomfortable? A little bit uncomfortable? Or hugely uncomfortable? Here's a subject that rips some churches apart. Believe me, it does. I could tell you more than one story where churches have been decimated by this very subject. What can you you and what can't you do in worship? What instruments should you and shouldn't you use in church service to lead praise? And let me remind you that we're not the first generation, nor will we be the last generation to wrestle with this subject. By the way, where do we first read of musical instruments in the Bible? What's the first mention of an instrumentalist in the Bible? Anybody? Early Genesis, okay, very good. What was the instrumentalist's name? Jubal, absolutely right. Genesis chapter 4, verse 21, his brother's name was Jubal, and Jubal was the father of all those who played the harp and flute. And from Jubal to Getty and End, the church has often been in turmoil regarding music and instruments. In preparation for this evening, I came across some information that really made me sit up and take notice. And I'm going to share some of that information with you as we go along. From the time of Jubal and from early Hebrew music, praise was spontaneous. Outbursts of praise were commonplace, like Miriam's song, after God parted the Red Sea. Then a young shepherd boy named David became, and I quote, the sweet singer of Israel. And change began. His psalms, often accompanied by musical instruments like the harp, were the hymn book of the Jews, and indeed the church, for many years. And speaking of church, what was going on in its earliest days of worship? Well, in Colossians 3, verse 16, we read these words, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another, with all wisdom and that you sing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God psalms, hymns and spiritual songs psalms, any psalm found in the book of psalms hymns, any song no matter what style that praises God and spiritual songs being any song no matter what style that teaches or conveys spiritual truth. Now, as you would expect, during the first several hundred years of the church, Christians remained true to this wide and varied kind of music. There were no rules as such, so long as it was scriptural and glorified God, it was welcome. Then, in 312 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine became a Christian now, A Christian, in inverted commas. Christianity became the official religion and it was very fashionable to become a Christian. Sadly, however, many educators and officials rose to positions of power in the church and became very uncomfortable with cultural diversity and spontaneity of music in the early church. And this led to a fateful decision They introduced what was called codification. They introduced rules and regulations. They became extremely legalistic and began to dictate what kind of music was suitable for church and what wasn't. For example, they began to discourage congregational singing. That's much too hard to control. And in time they replaced it with singing only by the clergy, perish the thought, And if it wasn't the clergy, it had to be specially appointed singers. Now, hang on to this. They also ruled out the use of instruments in the church. Way too noisy, they thought. And in so doing, they totally ignored the scriptures. Scriptures like the one we're considering here this evening, and especially verses 3, 4, and 5. But thankfully, all wasn't lost. Even out of these rules and regulations, God in his mercy allowed some of the most beautiful and dignified and formalized styles of music to come to the fore. Mainly what we look back on today and call chants and chanting. Now, you're maybe not into chants and chanting, but there were many people who were and found it very refreshing and very uplifting. And for about the next thousand years, that's the way things remained. Until in 1517, a monk named Martin Luther came to the fore. And Luther, who himself was an accomplished musician in his own right, began writing songs that reflected personal feelings and experiences that he was having with God. All scripturally based truths that common man could relate to. And shock of all shocks, he invited the congregation to join in and sing along. He took a different view of congregational singing. Now, I'm aware this evening that this isn't a seminar on church history and the role of music in church history, but let me just take a little bit more time to give you some other facts to help, help us put this whole subject of how we are to praise God into perspective. You see, not only did Luther bring back congregational singing... Even worse, he brought back musical instruments. And especially an instrument at that time which was very controversial in the church. Anybody know what it was? The church organ. The big church organ was brought back. An instrument that, although very popular in imperial Rome, became totally banned because it became so connected with pagan debauchery and and I quote the solemnity of music has become so pestered with small notes that for centuries it had been shunned some 200 years later God raised up this young man anybody want to hazard a guess as to who he is I'll give you a clue. Here are some of his hymns. Some of his hymns I have to tell you that I was nurtured on. I think I heard it. Isaac Watts. I remember as a boy of about nine sitting in the side hall of a church in Paxton Street over in Mount Pottinger and sitting beside a couple of men who taught me how to read music and how to sing tenor. And a lot of Isaac Watts' hymns were what we sang. You see, Isaac Watts was 15 years of age when he said, nobody my age can relate to those Luther hymns we're being asked to sing. Sound familiar? And even at that youthful age, he set out to write an excess of 500 new hymns. And how did the church establishment respond to Watts' hymns at the beginning? They loathed them. They absolutely hated them. Although they were extremely popular with the young people, many long-time church members called them Watts' Whims? Not What's Hymns, but What's Whims. But the new music survived, and thank God it did. But later that century, God raised up a couple of brothers to raise things up another notch. Who's this? remember that you recognize those hymns some great hymns that we still sing here and you're absolutely right charles wesley who was to write about six and a half thousand hymns and even these hymns were shunned by much of the established church of that day but god in his grace and goodness saw to it that wesley's hymns survived even though many churches were slow to change And God also saw to it that new songwriters would arrive on the church scene, but not without controversy. The next great controversy arose because of this lady, Fanny Crosby. How dare she introduce dance music into the church? That's what it was said about her. And there are some of the hymns that Fanny Crosby wrote. Some of the hymns she introduced, and if you know them, and think about them. Many of their tunes are written in three, four waltz rhythm. And her critics were scathing. How dare she introduce music that belongs to a dance hall, they said. Not in a holy sanctuary. One, two, three, one, two, three. And there you have it. I can't worship God with visions of dancers gliding across the floor. Was a lot of the comments that was made. And once again, churches were split and tempers were high. It was on the 2nd of July, 1865, that an, educa- an uneducated man began preaching to the down and outs of society in a tent in East London. He was only 36 years of age, had no steady income, had a wife and six children to support, and a seventh on the way. His name? William Booth, founder of the Salvation Army. And William Booth believed passionately that the way to reach the lost was through music that they really loved, especially the kind that got them tapping their toes and swaying in time to the beat. So he did something, and I quote, that was absolutely fried, that absolutely frayed the gizzards of traditionalists. That's what history records. He adopted popular tunes, many of them straight from London pubs, and gave them Christian lyrics. A typical example, Champagne Charlie is me name. And that became bless his name, he sets me free. Was he being scriptural? You tell me. Act seventeen. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I'm going to proclaim to you. And William Booth did the same. took something the lost people of his day were already open to and made it relevant to them. And of course he had his critics. It didn't matter to many how scriptural Booth's methods, methods were because many of them said, when I come to William Booth's meetings, I feel like I'm in a tavern. And do you know what one of the greatest tavern songs ever written was? Have you been to Jesus for the cleansing power? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? And many of us have had that privilege down many years to sing those words and know what they mean to us and know what they mean to others. And so we could go on different generations, different opinions. Larry Norman, whose famous line was Why should the devil have all the good music? was criticised for what? His long hair. Laughable when you think of Watson Wesley. <laughs> and what about today? I almost despair when I hear people criticize the Gettys and Stuart End. I had the privilege a few weeks ago of sitting in the waterfront and probably coming out of what I consider to be one of the most uplifting evenings that I've ever had listening to God's praise being sung, being played, being played in different ways and different rhythms in different generations, if you like. Even that evening, Stuart Townend went back to one of the old chants. And yet we hear it, ah, where are the good old days? Where are the good old hymns? Why are the drums so loud? Why do we have to sing Songs like that. Do you know what? When you and I think like that, and I do, and we do, all of us, we forget the very heart of Psalm 150. We forget to praise the Lord. And in forgetting to praise the Lord, we are in grave danger of missing the very heart of why we gather to worship. It's not about me. It's not about us. It's not about the instruments or the songs or the singers or the instrumentalists. It's all about God. It's about coming back to the heart of worship, which we often sing about. How are we to praise God? With all that he's given us. Any sort of instrument, with wind instruments, stringed instruments, percussion instruments, electronic instruments. We can also praise God with our bodies, our hands, our voices, our movements. Last Sunday morning was a great illustration of how we worship God. All ages together, comfortable, not forced, in how we worship. Some with exuberance, some of us less exuberant. Our voices, our bodies, our hearts all joined together and you're waiting for it aren't you did we dance I'm not going there that's for you to decide in my lifetime I've danced only twice once at my daughter's wedding when I couldn't get out of it and once at the barbecue and to this day I have no idea how Alice Taylor managed to get me to do it but listen I need to be careful careful that I don't limit God and God's word by my own inhibitions. And so do you. And also we need to be careful of our fear of worldly association. Church history, even as we have skimmed its surface this evening, is a warning to us. How much of what we object to is down to personal preference and selfish attitudes? How much of it has to do with our reluctance to change, or indeed how much of it has to do with our determination to make other people change, and both attitudes rob God of His worth and His divine right to be praised. And finally, who should praise the Lord? Who is to praise the Lord? Who is to bring Hallelujah before him? Well, we're in great danger of misrepresenting Psalm 150 if we simply say human life for believers. Because verse 6 says, Let everything that has breath praise the Lord. Everything and everyone in all of creation is to offer praise to the Lord. Two Psalms earlier, we read these words. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures, And all ocean depths, lightning and hail, snow and clouds, stormy winds that do his bidding. You mountains and all hills, fruit trees and all cedars, wild animals and all cattle, small creatures and flying birds, kings of the earth and all nations, you princes and all rulers on earth, young men and maidens, old men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord. For his name alone is exalted. His splendor is above the earth and the heavens. And the bottom line is this. If you and I don't live for the praise, the honor, and the glory of God, then our lives are wasted. Our existence is a big, fat zero. And our very breath is meaningless. So whenever you praise, be sure, in whatever way you do it, and with whatever you do it, that these words, let's praise the Lord, are forefront in our thinking.